Judges, chapter 5. We will attempt, Lord willing, to make it through the whole chapter. I realize it is 31 verses, but we will not go through it verse by verse. Mainly because Judges 5 is very difficult. It's very difficult to understand what it means. Now, I say it's difficult for me. It's difficult for many scholars, too. Now, in kind of reading through it, it, it may or may not make a lot of sense to you, or at least in my case, it made some sense to me in some, in some spots. In other spots, it left me scratching my head. And so as I began to, to, to look and study and research it, well, I found out that there's a lot of people who've been scratching their heads. There's a lot of different variances in the translations as to what some of these things mean. Now, people who are much smarter than me say that this is beautiful Hebrew poetry and that this is a great, a great work of, of poetry uh, that was written in the Old Testament. Uh, I say people greater than me because to me it doesn't really make that much sense. Uh, but I'll take their word for it. And so for that reason, because it's kind of difficult and I don't really understand it, even after reading about it a lot, uh, I can't even begin to really break down an attempt to say exactly what some of these things mean. Now, I'll give you some ideas, some options, some choices some things to consider, and we'll kind of hit some of the high spots. But if you've read through it already looking ahead or you've read through it in the past or you hear it tonight and it don't really make sense to you, well, just know that you are not alone. There are people in this world that are much smarter than me that don't get it, and they may be smarter than you. I won't lump you in the same category as me, uh, but, but much smarter than me for sure that don't get it. Uh, so if we don't get it, uh, it's, kinda, it, it's kind of a tough thing to understand. But there is some good truth here. And this, this poetry comes after what we read last week in chapter 4. Now, it's possible that what we call chapter 5 was written at a later date. That is, it may not have been written immediately after these things. It could have been writ written later and when, uh, when, when the Bible was constructed or when all of these writings were put together. It was put after chapter 5 because that's the most logical sense for us to understand it. Because there are some details in there that I alluded to last week that help us to understand uh, chapter 4 better. Now, if you've got a good study Bible, it's going to have some notes of some of these things and some of these differences or alternate readings of some of these things. But I will let you know that there are a bunch of alternate readings of some of these things. So if your Bible gives you one, just know that that's not the only one and that some of these Hebrew words are obscure. Some of them are hard for us to understand because we didn't live way back then. So we're really not masters of Hebrew poetry. Uh, even people who study it have not mastered this. So uh, all that said to say it's kind of a tough, a tough poem or a tough song for us, or for me at least, to completely understand. And so we're just going to hit the high points of it and not get drudged down through all 31 verses and try to, try to dig up all the different possibilities because we may would do that for two, two or three weeks and then still not be any clearer at the end of it. But there still is some good truth in Judges 5. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, we come to you tonight, and I thank you for your word. And God, even though this may be kind of a tough thing for us to understand, let us, let us see what's going on here. Let us get it as best we can. Help me to preach and teach and explain it as best I can, dear Lord. And let us get some spiritual truth from these words tonight. And I just ask that you would just pour your spirit out on us as we study. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. <clears throat> On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang, When the leaders lead Israel, 
when the people volunteer, praise the Lord. Now, this poetry or this song here is attributed to Deborah. Now, if you remember from last week, Deborah was the one, and Barak, uh, Barak was kind of the commander of the, of the army that was going to go in and take over Sisera, but Deborah was the one that said, okay, now's the time. Here's when you're supposed to do it. And Barak didn't want to go. He said, well, if you go with me, I'll go. And Deborah went with him, and Deborah did give a little tidbit of prophecy saying there was going to be a woman who was going to receive the, the honor for the, for the victory. And we saw last week that there was a woman who... Uh, did defeat Sisera, who was the enemy in this story, and her name was Jael. Now, we don't get very far into this where we find one of, one of the first things that's really hard for us to interpret, and that is in verse 2. And it says, when the leaders lead Israel. Now, that seems pretty simple, except that there are several different variations as to what this could mean. Uh, some would say that an actual literal, literal translation of the words uh, would have something to do with the locks of hair. Now, this is quite different than having anything to do with the locks of hair. Now, some of your translations may even mention that it has something to do with locks of hair. Now, uh, both of these would be true, no matter how we take it, even though the Hebrew is difficult. Both of the, these phrases, no matter what your translations say, we could probably find some truth in them. That is, when the leaders leave Israel, when the people volunteer, praise the Lord. Now, in this case, the leaders had been leading Israel. In particular, in the context, it had been Deborah and Barak who had led Israel. If we take the other translation or one of the other, uh, other thoughts, and that is it talks about those with the locks of hair being the leaders uh, there at the beginning, well, that would make sense too because it could be making a reference to Deborah since she was a female and she probably had long hair, or it could be making a reference to uh, Jael. So there is some, some, some reasoning for us to say that perhaps the reading of the locks or the long hair may would fit this story. Some would say, uh, interpret this uh, when it comes to the hair, saying that the men of Israel had long hair. Again, if you study this, you will find there are much, many different variations on what the obscure Hebrew is there as to what this initial line means. We won't go through every verse in, in such great detail with explanation, but I wanted to give you that explanation because that'll help you to understand. When I say this is difficult to understand, this is what I mean. When you really break it down and try to, try to see exactly what it means, some of these little details are really hard uh, for scholars and, and definitely hard for lay people like ourselves that may not be scholars to figure out exactly what they're saying. When the leaders lead in Israel, when the people volunteer, praise the Lord. Now, this is a, a song or a poet, a, a, a poem of praise here. They're praising the Lord for what took place. That is, he delivered them from their enemies. God had delivered Israel, and these enemies were still in the land. And while it was the land of Israel, uh, those enemies were... were uh, were there with the Israelites, and the Israelites were doing evil. Uh, and as a result of that, they had been oppressed by several different kings that we've seen so far. And here they've been delivered again, and they're praising the Lord as they should have done in that difficult time. Verse 3, Listen, kings, pay attention, princes. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you came from Seir, when you marched from the fields of Edom, the earth trembled. The, heavy, the heavens poured rain and the clouds poured water. The mountains melted before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, we have some very symbolic language here. Uh, we see that it talks about uh, God marching from the fields of Edom. 
Well, I don't know that God ever physically marched from the fields of Edom, but I believe that this is symbolic language, saying that God came up, that he was there, that he was there to support his people, that he was there to deliver his people. And that's kind of the language that we see. They even go so far back as to recall Mount Sinai, where God was on the mountain speaking to them, giving them the law. Now, it said the mountains melted before the Lord. Some of your translations may use a little bit of different language there. But we see clearly whatever yours says that it's symbolic language because Mount Sinai did not melt before the Lord, literally. Uh, but but we're, we're looking at God's power. We're looking at God's majesty. We're looking at God's deliverance. And that's what God had done. He had delivered his people. And they are praising him for what he had done in the past at Sinai, for his greatness, for him coming to their rescue and to their aid here. Uh, and, and that's what it appears that this is saying. Now, I say it appears because it's difficult, because this is kind of strange language. Uh, we, we are familiar with symbolism in several books of the Bible. Uh, maybe the most, most uh, prominent one that comes to mind would be Revelation or maybe the book of Ezekiel or Daniel. We're aware of that type of symbolism, but here it's just kind of thrown into the middle of Judges chapter 5 with other wording that may not make a whole lot of sense to us. And so uh, though, that's, that's my idea here and my thought as to what's being said in this symbolic language. It's pointing to the power of God and that he was a deliverer of the people. I say that's how I understand it, although I may be wrong. I'm not by any means claiming to be a, an expert at breaking down this passage. I'm just telling you uh, what I think that, that these verses could mean, and that gives us something to at least consider. Uh, in verse 5, excuse me, verse 6, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, uh, the mains ways were deserted because travelers kept to the side roads. Villages were deserted. They were deserted in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, a mother in Israel. Israel chose new gods. Then war was in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Now, Deborah here gives some praise to Shamgar which we don't know much about. We, we didn't spend much time on Shamgar because uh, the Scripture doesn't say much about Shamgar. Obviously, Deborah was giving him some praise here for whatever he did. He did kill all those Philistines, and he did uh, deliver the people of Israel. We see that in the text, but other than that, we aren't really told that he's a judge, although he could have been. But at least in Deborah's eyes, she's giving him praise in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, and she's pointing out what happens in these days. What was going on in those days? Well, those were bad days. The main ways were deserted, but travelers kept to side roads. Uh, one thought is that the reason why the main roads were deserted is because they would have been dangerous. If Israel's enemies would have been traveling down the main roads, it would not have been safe for them, and so they were going the side roads. Uh, some of you may have taken side roads in the past. I, I know that nobody's ever, ever done anything illegal or tried to avoid the cops in any way, but you may know somebody at least that's taken side roads to avoid getting caught because they didn't want to go through a roadblock or they didn't want to get in trouble. And maybe they were doing something illegal. And so we kind of get the idea, if you want to stay out of trouble, you stay away from the main roadways. It says the villages were, the, were deserted. They were deserted in Israel. So things were not good in Israel. Things were bad. We know that already because we read chapter 4 last week. We know that they had done evil, and we know that they had been oppressed uh, under King Jabin uh, for, for 20 years. And so Deborah says, until I arose, and she calls herself here the mother of Israel. She arose, and she was the next judge in the cycle who was going to deliver Israel. Uh, 
Israel chose new gods, then war was in the gates. Now that's true. Again, this is something we've seen throughout the book of Judges. They did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They began to worship the gods of the people who were already there. She's just restating what's going on, the condition of Israel, and why they needed to be delivered, and kind of what life was like for them. Then she points out something interesting that kind of, when we put it with our story last week, uh, to me it's interesting at least, and that is, she says, not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So it does not appear as though Israel would have been well equipped for the battle that they faced last week. In contrast, Sisera's army, if you remember, had 900 iron chariots, which would have been like tanks. I mean, that would have been the, the best... Uh, the best weaponry of the day. And here Deborah points out that 40,000 in Israel didn't have spears uh, or didn't have shields. Now, there were definitely, I would, I believe, more than 40,000 Israelites at this time. Uh, I'm sure there were considerably more. So where this number comes from, I can't give you a, a real good, good, good theory on that. Although I suppose it's possible there were only 40,000 Israelites. I don't know that we could rule that out but it seems unlikely. Regardless, I think the key part that we can take from that verse is they did not have any weapons and they did not have any shields. In verse 9, My heart is with the leaders of Israel, with the volunteers of the, Lord, of the people. Praise the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, who sit on saddle blankets, and who travel on the road, give praise. Let them tell the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous deeds of His warriors in Israel, with the voices of the singers at the watering places. Then the Lord's people went down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and take hold of your captives, son of Abinoam. The survivors came down to the nobles. The Lord's people came down with the war, to me with, war, with the warriors. Those with their roots in Amalek came from Ephraim. Benjamin came with your people after you. The leaders came down from Meshir. And those who carry a martial staff came from Zebulun. So uh, as these enemies are, are around Israel, it appears as though these people are beginning to gather and they're beginning to come to Deborah and come to Barak. Now, we won't dig into all those verses I just read because there's just too much there and I just don't really understand them well enough to give you guys much of an explanation, uh, even as much as I've read and tried to. I still don't know that I can add too much to that. Uh, so uh, I will encourage you to study that some more on your own, and maybe over time uh, you may can come to a, a better conclusion or understanding of some of those verses than myself. In verse uh, 15, The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Issachar was with Barak. They, sent out, they set out his heels in the valley. There was great searching of heart among the clans of Reuben. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds listening to the playing of pipes for the flocks? There was great searching of heart among the clans of Reuben. Gilead remained beyond the Jordan. Dan, why did you linger at the ships? Asher remained at the seashore and stayed in his harbors. Now, it appears as though what Deborah is saying here, as she lists these tribes of Israel, is that they did not come to the aid uh, uh, to fight when all of this was going on. And she's kind of calling them out. Now, that language there may seem kind of odd where it says... Um, 
there was great searching of the heart among the clans of Reuben. Uh, I believe what she's saying there is that, that the, the clans of Reuben, as well as these others, they did not come to the rescue. They did not come to the aid of, of them as they were preparing for this war. Instead, uh, they sit among sheepfolds, listening to playing pipes uh, for the flock. So they, they weren't really concerned with what was going on and what was taking place nor were the other ones that were mentioned. It said Gilead remained beyond the Jordan. That's probably uh, speaking of Gad there, Gad being referred to as Gilead. Gad was one of the three tribes that did not cross over the Jordan into the Promised Land, but they requested to stay back on the eastern side of the Jordan. And so it could be uh, and likely is when it says Gilead there, it's speaking of Gad. Since it's in the list of these other tribes, that makes the most sense, I believe. Uh, So when it says Gilead there, it's probably or possibly talking about Gad remained beyond the Jordan, which would make sense. They stayed on the other side of the Jordan where they were instead of coming to her aid. So she points out some of these tribes that did not come, although there are some tribes that aren't mentioned. Judah and Simeon are not mentioned in this list. But if you remember from last week, there were two tribes that did come together that did supply troops to help fight against Sisera. And that's what we'll see in these next few verses. Zebulun was a people risking their lives. Nephtali also on the heights of the battlefield. Kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. But they took no spoil or silver. Now, we see here the two that did come fight, Zebulun and Nephtali. And so... It seems as though that she's given them a little bit of praise here for what they did. The rest of them didn't come, but these two tribes did come, and they did provide men to fight against Sisera. Now, in verse 20, it says, The stars fought from the heavens. The stars fought with Sisera from their courses. Now, I don't know if we are to take that symbolically or if we are to take that literally. Now, it is very possible. It's not hard to believe that God could have uh, fought, fought Sisera with stars from heaven. That is, there could have been a meteor shower. There could have been things falling from the heavens. That's not hard for me to imagine. God could do that. He has the power to do that. So it's not hard to think that that could be literal when it says that the stars fought from the heavens, the stars fought with Sisera from their courses. <coughs> if it's symbolic, I'm not really sure what the symbolism is there. I'll just be honest with you. You guys may have some ideas, and if you do, I would love for them to share you with me later. But but so far, I haven't come up with any good ideas as to exactly what that could mean that the stars fought from the heavens if it's not to be taken literally, if it is to be symbolic. And there is a good case made that it is to be symbolic for the fact that those verses prior that we looked at at the beginning appear to be symbolic. And so this could be literal or this could be symbolic, but in whatever way, it was God who was in control of this battle and it was God who overtook Sisera by whatever means he did it, whether that's symbolic or literal, it was the Lord who was fighting for the Israelites to overtake Sisera. In verse 21, the river Kishon swept them away. Uh, The ancient river, the river Kishon, march on my soul in strength. Now, 
Uh, we talked about the, the uh, Wadi Kishon last week. That's a, a valley that sometimes flood in rainy seasons. Uh, my translation here refers to the Kishon as a river. Some of your translations are going to refer to it as a torrent. Uh, there are several different ways that it may be referred to, but we get the picture because all three of those, a Wadi when it floods is like a river. Of course, a river is like a river, and a torrent is what a river does. That's, that's language to describe a rushing and raging river. Now, when it says that the river swept them away, way, uh, that would make sense because we saw that they had all those chariots, so it would have taken something pretty miraculous to overtake those chariots. And a, and, a, and a flooding river would have done just that. Should they have gotten there where they were and the river began to flood and torrents would begin to come, then that would stop, that would stop chariots. You're not going to be able to drive your chariots in water on muddy ground. And that may be the explanation as to why Sisera took off on foot and why all the rest of the chariots were pretty much rendered useless. This would be a good explanation if we are to take this literally. And I think that we could take it literally because it makes a good explanation uh, for the fact that this could be why the chariots uh, were, were derailed, so to speak, in chapter 4. Verse 22, The horse's hooves then hammered the galloping, galloping of his stallions. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Bitterly curse her inhabitants, for they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty warriors. Now, I don't know where Miraz is, and I don't believe that that city is listed anywhere else in the rest of Scripture. And so I think anything we get from it would have to come from here or studying uh, extra-biblical books that tell us about history. Uh, wherever this city is and whoever these people were, uh, they're being cursed here because they did not come and fight alongside the Israelites. Even though they could, even though it appears they were nearby, uh, they did not come and fight with the Lord and fight with uh, His people throughout this. And so a curse is placed on them. Verse 24. Jael is is most blessed of women, the wife of Heber the Kenite. She is most blessed among tent-dwelling women. Now, this is a tough one for, for us maybe to wrap our head around. Now, last week when we talked about Jael, I kind of focused on, on one idea, and that is, is that Jael could have been an evil woman, and nowhere in the text does it say that God commanded her to kill Sisera in the harsh way that she did by driving the tent peg through his head. It could have been that she just acted on her own and she herself was evil, uh, killing another evil person, and that's just the way it worked out. Uh, I kind of focused on that way, uh, on that idea last week, that is that God didn't tell her to do it. Uh, but on the flip side, after thinking about it some this week, especially in, the, in these verses, perhaps we need to look at it another way. Because here, at least, it appears as though Deborah is speaking pretty highly, uh, or at least the people, whoever, whoever wrote this, if, if not Deborah, uh, is speaking pretty highly over because it said, J.L. is most blessed of all women. Now, there's only one other woman in Scripture that's called the most blessed, and that is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, the same language is used here to describe a woman who took a tent peg and drove it through a man's head when he was asleep as it is to describe Jesus' mother. Now, those two are very different from one another. Now, it just could be that they're saying she's blessed because she destroyed an enemy and what she did was not of the Lord and, and he didn't call her to do so. She did it on her own, but the result was still the same. The people of Israel were blessed in that they were delivered from their enemy. Another way that we could take it, though, is that she's blessed because she was doing exactly what the Lord told her to do. 
Now that one may be a little harder for us to wrap our head around. It may be hard for us to comprehend or think that God may would have called her or asked her or told her to, to kill a man. Now, it is hard for us to wrap our head around, so I had to think today and think, okay, if this is the way, one way we could take it, is there a way that this could be taken in a way that would not make God look evil? Because obviously God is not evil. It could be that God called her to do that, and in call, calling her to do that, and calling her to bring justice to an evil man who needed to face death for his actions, it could be that she's not guilty of any sin because the Lord himself has called her to do that. Let me give you an example. Now, you may disagree with this example, as many Christians do, but I'll give you an example and just something to consider so you consider both sides. Either she acted on her own or she acted for the Lord. I want to give you two options to consider and give you reasons why they both may have some strength. The fact that she uh, 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 acted on her own, if that was the case, uh, that would make sense. If she was evil and she dealt with another evil man, well, that was just evil people being evil, just living like they live. And that's the way people do things. They fight and feud and sometimes kill each other. That's really not that hard to, to, to understand or not that hard to accept that she would have acted on her own. If indeed she acted uh, because the Lord told her to, that is, justice needed to be served and an evil needed to be taken out, well, one, one, one theory that I have considered is that in this day and age, imagine that there was a serial killer who had killed many people and had killed many people gruesomely. And he went before a jury and it was decided that he was to face the death penalty. Now the governor or whoever makes the call that has to sign on that says, yep, he gets the death penalty. His sentence has been arranged, and so the day comes that he will be put to death. Somebody has to be the one to put him to death. Somebody has to put the needle in his arm. Now, is the person who puts the needle in the man's arm guilty of murder? Well, he's not guilty of murder. Now, if that same person was to go out on the street, begin to inject people and kill them, guess what? They're a murderer. But if the governor or the one in charge or the judge has signed off and saying, this is just sentence for this person who has committed this crime and the sentence must be paid for their evilness, well, if the one in charge writes signs off on it and calls the one to do it, then they are not guilty of murder. Now, that may be a possibility for us to look at this that happened with J.L. It may be that God said justice needs to be served. Sisera was an evil man. Now, some may say, well, he didn't have an opportunity to repent. What if he'd have lived longer? What if God would have given him another chance? Well, the same could be said for you and I. Uh, we could die tonight in our sleep. This may be a good lesson for us. Don't go to sleep tonight with any sin in your life because you may not wake up tomorrow. Hopefully you won't wake up with a tent peg through your head, but at the very least you might not wake up tomorrow for whatever reason. Now, we don't want to be in the same boat as Sisera. That is, living in sin and living in complete evilness because God is a just God and justice will be served. Now, whether it happened through a tent peg through his head or whether it happened when he died of old age, eventually that justice was going to be served and there's a possibility that God did call J.L. to do that, and she wasn't guilty of any wrong because she was simply doing uh, what the Lord called her to do. Now, those are two options, and you may disagree uh, with, with both of those. You may have a third option, or maybe you lean more toward one or the other. Now, I know that there are many Christians who would be opposed to the death penalty, and so they would definitely be opposed to the second option because they would view that as being wrong, and maybe you're on that side of the fence. I'm not trying to tell you you're right or wrong. I'm just trying to give you some options to help you understand 
ways that we may could look at Jael because obviously Deborah here uh, looks at her as the most blessed woman. And there's got to be a reason for that. It could simply be that she destroyed the enemy or it could be she's blessed because she did what the Lord called her to do. Now there are other opinions that we will not go through. As I mentioned, there are lots of different options and opinions for these. But those are a couple that at least in my mind seem reasonable and make sense. And I could probably accept either one except the scriptures just don't tell us one way or another. So it's just kind of a judgment call, and we may not know the answer for sure until we get to heaven. All right, verse 25. He asked for water, she gave him milk. She brought him curdled milk in a majestic bowl. So she went above and beyond what he asked for. Uh, when it says uh, when it says curds or, or curdled milk here, uh, it might have been something like yogurt. It would have been a delicacy. It would have been something good. It was far better than water. And so she had given him the blanket. Uh, we saw that in the passage last week. She gives him she gives him this milk or this yogurt, whatever it is, and she gives it to him in a magnificent or a ma- or a majestic bowl or a lordly bowl, as some of your translations would say. She gives it to him in some fine china. Not just the paper plate. She gets the she gets the stuff. You know the stuff that's on the top shelf that you eat on about once every ten years because you're saving it to special guests and you don't ever have any guests that are quite special enough to eat off of it. And so that's probably what this majestic bowl would have been like. It would have been something that would have been special. And so it just kind of recounts what happened. She reached for a tent peg her right hand for a workman's mallet. Then she hammered Sisera. She crushed his head and shattered and pierced his temple. He collapsed, he fell, he lay down at her feet. He collapsed, he fell at her feet. When he collapsed, there he fell dead. Now, again, this one leaves me scratching my head. He was asleep. She snuck in silently. If he's asleep with his head on the ground and she drove the peg with his head into the ground, then how in the world did he collapse uh, at her feet uh, and, and, and fall dead? That would, in, that would imply that he would have to be standing. So again, maybe there are more details. Maybe after she struck him, he didn't die, and he tried to stand up, and then he died, and then she nailed him back to the, to the, to the ground. I really don't know. Uh, that's why I tell you, this is difficult. This is a difficult one for me to wrap my head around, and perhaps you guys too. In verse 28, now we take a totally different shift. Things totally shift gears here in verse 28 from everything that we've talked about up to this point. Sisera's mother looked through the window. She peered through the lattice, crying out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why don't I hear the footbeats, excuse me, the hoofbeats of his horses? Her wisest princesses answer her. She even answers herself. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil of a girl or two for each warrior? The spoil of colored garments for Sisera? The spoil of an embroidered garment or two for my neck? Now, Here we shift gears, and here we see a mother whose son is not coming home. She's waiting for her son to come home, but yet he is not coming home. And she's saying, where could he be? And she knows herself, as well as those who are with her, say, well, they're dividing the spoils of victory. They're, they're, they're picking the women from among themselves. They're, they're all getting them one or two women. They're getting them the finest garments to put around themselves. Now, again, there's a couple of ways that we can look at this, and one of which is tough. We say, boy, this is a sad story. We read about this gruesome death of this woman's son, and now we see her anxiously uh, waiting for a son who's never going to come home, and how sad it's going to be. What a, what a sad, horrible story. Well, it is sad. It is sad that a man lost his life. It is sad that he was evil in such a way uh, that he wanted to kill the Israelites. Uh, but... We could look at it as, well, if he hadn't been killed by Jael, 
he, he would have continued on his way and he would have been able to destroy the Israelites possibly. And so somebody was going to be destroyed in this story. It was either going to be Sisera destroying the Israelites or it was going to be the Lord destroying Sisera. Somebody was going to be destroyed in this story. And so if we, if we feel sad that, that Sisera died, well, let us not feel sad for too long because had he not died and come home to mother with the spoils of victory, guess what that would have meant? Well, it would have meant that he would have killed all the Israelites. And so there is no happy ending to this story except that we know evil was punished and that justice was served and that God delivered his people. It is sad when anyone dies, whether they are good or evil. God wishes that all would repent and turn to Him, as we should too as Christians. We should want people to turn from their evil and wicked ways. But there are some times that they do not, and sometimes their sin catches up with them, and they pay the consequences with their very life. And that's exactly what happened to Sisera. He was not an innocent man. He was a murderer who would have murdered the Israelites had God not intervened and delivered them. So when we read that story, it may be natural for us to feel sorry for, for his mother, uh, but on the flip side, she was probably just as evil as him. Although the text doesn't say that, uh, it may be reasonable to assume so. She raised him, and she had the same beliefs as him, and she would have probably celebrated his victory and all the Israelites he would have killed when he would have gotten home. And so uh, those are some things to consider, even though that verse may be a tough verse, as well as the one that we read about a jail being blessed by her actions. Verse 31, last verse. Lord, may all your enemies perish as Sisera did, but those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its strength, and the land was peaceful for 40 years. Now, had God not have delivered Israel from Sisera, the land would not have been peaceful. The, God's people would still have been oppressed. But because God intervened, because God delivered His people, they lived in peace. Now that's a great place to be, is in the peace of the Lord. We talked about that, I think, yesterday at the apartments. When we are in the peace of God, that is really the best place to be. Because if we're in the peace of God, nothing else really matters. No matter how bad our circumstances or situations may be, if we have God's peace, boy, we can get through those things. We can get through those difficulties. And it says here, Lord, may all your enemies perish as Sisera did. And all of, of God's enemies will perish. Now, they might not all, uh, specifically speaking, get a tent peg through their head, but they all will perish in the way that he did, in that justice will be served, and God will overtake them. He will do that with every enemy. From Sisera all the way to Satan, God is going to punish and overtake all of his enemies. And that's in this song of praise here of Deborah. She's saying, Lord, may all your enemies perish as Sisera did and the Lord's enemies will perish. But we don't want anybody to be the Lord's enemy. We want people to be saved. We want people to be called friends of God, people to be called children of God. We want to be called children of God. And if you're not a, children, a child of God, then you are an enemy of God. And if you are an enemy of God, then you're going to suffer the same fate as Sisera. That is, one day you're going to have to stand before God. One day God is going to bring justice. And that's what the prayer is in this, in, this, in this song. And that's exactly what's going to happen. God is going to hear this request, uh, and He's going to do that. They're simply requesting something God is already going to do. So those who are evil are going to suffer the consequences. But 
May those who love him, now some of your translations may have him capitalized. Some of them may have it lowercase. I think King James has him uh, has it lowercase, uh, but New King James has it capitalized as well as most other translations. Now, uh, but may those who love him, I do believe it's probably speaking of the Lord there, although it's difficult to know for sure. But it would make sense in the context of what's being said that those who love him would be the Lord because those who don't love him are going to get punished. But those who do love him, uh, let them be like the rising of the sun in its strength. Uh, And so it's saying be strengthened in the Lord. I thought about Superman when I read that verse. If you know Superman, you know when his power's drained, what does he have to do? Well, if you don't know, he has to go to the sun. When he flies up through the atmosphere and gets through the clouds and the sun hits him and he he does this and he just, you can just tell he's just being energized. He's just soaking it up. It's the same when when the sun pops through on a cloudy day. It just feels good after it's been raining a while, after it's been stormy a while. Uh, if you've ever been through a, through a hurricane season or through a, a period without lights, maybe some of you remember Katrina. Boy, that was rough times. It was hot. It was nasty. It was rainy. The wind was blowing. But boy, wasn't it great when the storm finally passed and the sun began to shine through. And that's kind of what these verses are talking about. Let those who trust in the Lord, let those who love the Lord be strengthened by Him. That whatever storm you may be going through in life, whatever sin you may be going through in life, whatever evil you may be guilty of, will repent of those things. Don't live like Sisera and die in your sin, but live like those who come to Jesus Christ and repent and are forgiven of your sins so that you'll be strengthened. Whatever storm you're in, whatever hard time you're in, whatever difficulty you're in, take it to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to strengthen me. I need you to shine some light, some sunshine in my life, in the darkness of my sin so that I'll be strengthened, dear Lord, so that I can love you and I can be one with you one day and I can be your child and not be your enemy. And that's what these closing words say. Lord, may all your enemies perish, but let those uh, who love him be like the rising of the sun in his strength. Let us be strengthened in the Lord. And when they were strengthened in the Lord, guess what happened? They were at peace for 40 years. And it was only their sin that knocked them out of peace when those 40 years was up. And the same is true for us. When we are in the Lord's presence and we are finding our strength in him, we will be at peace. When we begin to sin and turn from the Lord, we will leave the Lord's peace. We won't feel that peace. We'll feel condemnation. We'll feel the the pain and the sorrow of sin. We'll feel that burden of sin in our life. So let us not be those who who live in sin and don't receive peace, but let us be those who are strengthened in the Lord and find peace in the Lord. Let's pray. God, we come to you tonight. I thank you for these words, and I pray that you help us to wrap our head around them, dear Lord. I know I, I probably didn't do a your word justice tonight uh, by trying to explain this, but I pray, God, that I didn't confuse anybody more. And I pray, dear Lord, if I did, that you help them uh, get straight, dear Lord, that you help them to understand it. Help me to understand this tough chapter. And I pray that we got something from it, dear Lord. And I pray that we trust you no matter... no matter whether we understand your word fully or not, dear Lord, no matter if there are some things that are hard for us, God, we know that you're right in all you do and help us not to forget that. Help us to come to you for strength. Help us to find that strength in you, dear Lord. And I pray that if there's sin in our life, that we would repent of that, that we'd be ashamed of it, and that we'd turn from it and turn to you, dear Lord, and that we would find your peace. And I pray that if somebody's struggling tonight, dear Lord, that they would come to you to find that strength and peace. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.